Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 284 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 18 of 2021. I'm almost out of hands and fingers here. Uh, wait, no, almost out of fingers and toes. Wow, this could be a good show. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the. Wait a sec, this is exciting. Now the chairman of the board of the Roush Family Taxi Service, Christopher Roche. First thing I got you got to do as chairman is change that name from Roush Taxi Service to Roche Taxi Service. It's just you you have that power now. I'm speechless, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> it is Monday morning, May 10th, and Chris and I are going to talk about the Spanish Grand Prix. Chris, where shall we begin? And I, I have a guess. Uh, 100 poles. Yep, yep, I guessed right. You owe me a bottle of gin. I've now declared every time I guess right on the thing that you didn't know I was guessing about. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's quite an achievement, 100 poles. You know, it was tight as well. It was, what, 36 hundredths of a second. Uh, so it was a good qualifying battle between him and Max. The, uh, the, the Mercedes and the Red Bull evenly matched around Barcelona, at least on one lap pace. But Hamilton got it done. And, uh, you know, it's astonishing. I mean, Senna's record of 65, Schumacher's of 68, and he's put some distance between them on 100. Uh, astonishing. I think it, it was very telling to me that the announcers of Sky Sports were comparing Lewis Hamilton's record to different manufacturers over the history of the sport that had achieved that goal. So, in this way... Hamilton's become his own manufacturer. <laughs> He's Lewis is his own constructor when it comes to uh, record comparisons, which I found I found very telling. But uh, the other thing I found interesting about it was once again uh, these were these were the times set early in the Q3 session, and no one could beat their own time. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a strange. Uh facet of qualifying that we've seen now in two races in a row but I, I I guess I'd like to talk a little bit more about Hamilton's pole record for a second I mean first of all that the the funny stat I heard was that it would take you more than two hours to watch all his pole laps back to back which is quite staggering when you think about it um, and the, there was a really nice interview uh, Martin Brundle had with Hamilton talking about his approach to, uh, you know, setting qualifying times and trying to get on pole. And it amused me because there were a couple of things that Hamilton completely dismissed as nonsense that I think many average racer would consider to be critical. So uh, one thing he dismissed was the track walk. He said it was pointless. He used to do it, but doesn't do it anymore. You know, it's just uh, the, the relative speed, obviously, between walking and driving the track. He just found it just wasn't beneficial. I thought that was an interesting comment. The other thing I thought was fascinating was the, uh, this was a trick I used to use, the sort of visualization of the lap where you drive the lap in your mind um, before a qualifying session. And you think about, you know, your braking points, turning points, you know, what you want to do throughout the circuit. And he said he didn't do that either. <laughs> he thinks that's entirely pointless. So I just, you know, what it was, it was just fascinating that he sort of, I mean, obviously at this point in his career and with this experience and capability, he's developed his own methods, um, but they sort of, they're quite distinct from, from 
from other peoples. Um, and one thing that he did comment on that was maybe helpful was that he doesn't try and use one driving style for an entire lap. So he will literally adapt his style based on the circuit, based on the corner. Um, you know, what does that mean? I mean, it might mean that he take, changes his braking style, uh, trail braking or uh, braking uh, harshness, you know, turning points, throttle application. He, he, may, he may be mixing that all up from corner to corner lap, uh, on, a, on any given lap, which is quite amazing to think about, really. But I guess when you reach that level, you can do what you want. A couple of things. Uh, so one thing that strikes me about what Lewis Hamilton is saying to Martin Brundle it reminds me of Daniel Ricciardo and how he was talking about how he's still learning the car, the McLaren, and how he's still, to a certain extent, driving consciously versus subconsciously. And what those comments that Hamilton is talking about, about you know track walk and visualizing ahead of time, I think that Hamilton is what he's really done is perfected the ability to really drive the car subconsciously that everything, all those thoughts about turn-in points and where to go here and how the car reacts, when you, what you do when the car reacts this way versus that way or whatever, that's all deep in his subconscious. You know, it's like buried, buried into his habits. So that allows his conscious self to, um, I don't know, perhaps think about baseball stats, but maybe more likely to, um, oh, I'm sorry, cricket stats. Um, maybe more likely uh, he's thinking about these different things you're talking about, like quote-unquote driving styles that he can implement. And I think that's, in my mind, what I'm picking up from that is he's just gotten so very good at just having just this very in-tune subconscious to interact with the moments that the car is responding to his inputs. But uh, the other thing, that, that whole, like... Because I've heard Lewis say this a few times over the years about adapting his driving style. And I don't... I I just think that Lewis has a different drive... He has a driving style. And his driving style can involve different amounts of trail braking at different corners. To me, that... He just... This whole adapting driving styles, to me, is a bit of a... That's... I, I, I don't really buy that. That's more of a... Your, your driving style is just separate from that. And your driving style includes multiple trail braking techniques but he just has whatever it is a really good driving style there's certainly no argument about it but i i have this i have this hard time saying well that he has many driving styles it's like no you have a driving style it's just a highly effective one that includes multiple different ways of doing things and that style is informed by that subconscious that i just talked about well i mean you brought up daniel ricardo so i was uh, i was hearing that he was being quite heavily coached during the race by his uh, race engineer on on his braking application, and so they were encouraging him to change the style. Uh, you know how quickly he was basically stabbing the brake pedal because he was inducing understeer into the car by changing the the, the you know the, the the duration and the pressure he was applying to the pedal was able to mitigate some of that understeer effect. So. I mean that's the you know that's the detail you can get to in driving style. Everything you're controlling on the vehicle, right? You can adjust the speed with which you control the the steering, the the brake, the throttle, uh, and we know that they analyze the data. They overlay traces, right, off from their own laps or laps with their teammates, 
and try and find time here and there and obviously the, the, the line how, how much curve they use I mean I don't know the, the thing that I was watching quite carefully during the race was the use of the sausage curb on the last corner onto the straight you know basically using that curb to help turn the car a little bit so you know all of these parameters you can you can play with and and I guess you know the point is is that you don't necessarily use the same mixture on every corner um, and and you know to be able to remember that process it develop it and you know that, that takes a huge amount of effort but but as you said when you've been doing it so long and, and it is deep ingrained in your psyche then you can you can get to that level of distinction which is where you know your other, other end of the spectrum is your mazapan who's basically barely keeping it on the track <laughs> and is acting as a mobile <laughs> chicane so I, I think the other thing that amused me about that interview was I think Hamilton said he doesn't do more than 20 laps in the simulator in any given season. He says he hates it. He doesn't, he doesn't bother, doesn't see it of any value. And then you get people like Norris who spends half their waking hours in, in the simulator, it seems. So just different, different approaches, isn't it? Um, and I'm not necessarily sure that you could emulate Hamilton's approach and, and be successful necessarily. But, Nor would uh, you necessarily just, want to. I, right. I think that's a key takeaway there as well. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was um, it's a good old battle. I, I think Quali was, you know, there was some some interesting. It was quite an interesting order. I mean, the top four were fairly predictable with Botas and Leclerc rounding out the the, the four there. Uh, Botas sort of in the mix, but not quite not quite close enough on the key Q three runs. But the two um, that really struck me was Ocon managing to get fifth place in the Alpine, which was sort of uh, reinforced the step they made in Imola. Uh, sorry, in Portimao, in the last race at Portimao. And then also... And, and once again ahead of Alonso. Yeah, that's right. But Alonso did make Q3 this time. But then Perez had a torrid old time in uh, getting in eighth and complaining about mysterious shoulder issues and dropped it on his first Q3 run, putting a wheel in the gravel, causing a spin, and then you know not really able to, to find the necessary pace in, in his second run. And that really put Red Bull's weekend on the back foot at that point with, with him being so far down the order. Yeah, I, I do. I want to talk about Perez a touch more throughout the podcast, but it, I, this is a good point to say. There seems to be just the way that Helmut Marco operates or something that puts pressure on the driver that Red Bull deems the number two driver that is just untelling because these are the type of mistakes that Perez hasn't made in years. And we're seeing just, it, to me, this looks like underlying heavy, heavy pressure on his shoulders, hence the shoulder pain, perhaps. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, but I, I agree with you. I thought the I thought the Alpine performance was quite impressive and... It seems to be that Alpine is kind of replacing um, the uh, AlphaTauri as the oh these guys could be these guys could really be a threat for podiums on occasion, let alone solid points finishes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it changed a lot on Sunday, but uh, while we but but I agree, Alpine seem to now at least on on quality pace seem to have inserted themselves firmly in the in the midfield battle and up there with Ferrari and McLaren. Speaking of McLaren, um, you know, Danny Rick managed to out-qualify Norris, uh, getting seventh place. And Norris, yep. Norris blamed Mazapan for his woes. Uh, I guess Mazapan caused him to have to abort one of his runs in Q1, necessitating a, a, another fresh set of softs in Q1, which actually put him to the top of the times. Um, 
but then many right. had one set less in Q3 and uh, didn't do a great job and qualified only ninth, which, as we know, Barcelona is not the easiest track to pass on and, uh, and really you know, hurt his weekend and uh, sort of gave, gave uh, Ricardo the initiative and helped him get over his, his tough start to life at McLaren. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, yeah, Lando, who had done superbly well so far this season, this was the first season where he's had, he hit like a genuine rough patch, right? This was just an off, grumpy weekend for him, whether it's his doing or otherwise. And yeah, Mazepin is rock solid. He is bedrock of consistency for us. And uh, you have to respect that side of it at least you know there was interviews with Mazepin and he's he's clearly growing frustrated with himself in this situation as well he knows that he's underperforming and maybe he's been surprised at just how high the level is like what the minimum level of Formula One competition is maybe that caught him off guard and we'll see if he can get up to that before you know before it really gets dire for his future career but uh do you I want to talk the, at all? Oh, no, well, I just wanted to stick, stick with Rookie Watch there for a second. So we've got Mazapan, who, who is really just, you know, covering himself in infamy from, from session to session, whether it's being slow, spinning, or getting in everybody's way. Um, but then you've got, uh, you know, Mick Schumacher sort of flying under the radar, doing a perfectly uh, respectable job and not causing any trouble. So you don't even sort of see him on a race weekend. And properly mixing it up again with Williams and with Alfa Romeo a little bit. Yeah, but but the man that surprised me over the weekend was Sonoda. The, you know, everyone was super excited about him in Bahrain. And since then, he's sort of imploded. And, and it reached a, a really low point at Barcelona where, you know, he went out in, in Q1 and then blamed the team and said they weren't giving him equal equipment to Gasly and basically threw his toys out of the pram, which, yeah. you know, four races into your Grand Prix career isn't necessarily what I would have suggested doing. Yeah, no, I, that was definitely on my list of things to discuss. I, he, he came in pretty highly rated, had a nice fine job in Bahrain, as you said, but then, you know, some more obvious... I mean, let's not forget, he has not known any parts... Of the oh, my mom's gonna yell at me. He's not known any parts of the 20th century. Okay, yes, you're right, mom. That's not true. He was technically born in the 20th century. He does not know any of the 1900s at all. And my point is, he's super young, and he's a rookie. And again, you know, Red Bull, Red Bull pressure is not the lowest in the Formula One paddock. So uh, there's a lot going on there. Where you know, but Pierre Gasly has several Formula One seasons under his belt. He's a Grand Prix winner, and he's been in the Red Bull system for several years as well. So those are those are two interesting bookends to um, the spectrum of what Red Bull racing drivers are like. And I feel like he just has to like calm down, and uh, I don't mean this to be rude, but like calm down and grow up. I mean, it's just going to take some time. He's young. Absolutely. Uh, you need to just get your head down, work hard. Right. Do the right things. Learn the processes. Get you know. Learn from your teammate, and then hopefully by sort of mid-season, you're matching the you know, your teammate on a consistent basis, and look to try and get ahead of them on from time to time. You know, take advantage of of strong weekends, but otherwise, you know, just don't 
just don't get yourself in trouble. And so far, two of the three of them haven't figured that out yet. And you sort of want worry about them until they until they get that right. Uh, I mean, I think Mazepin just needs to be kicked out of the sport, quite honestly, quite honestly or well, at least Formula One. And Mazepin's not that young. He's gone down a very different route to get to Formula One. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, well, no, to wait till his dad made enough money. Right. Mick Schumacher, yes, he's he's definitely impressing. I am super excited for when his voice changes and uh he becomes a real man and um, but his his driving, no, he's his driving there's it's inevitable, but it's also been pleasant to see there are a lot of things about his mental approach that I can see connections to his father. And that's exciting on a lot of levels, I think. I think his dad would be horrified that one, he's in a house, and two, he's, his best hope is to out-qualify his teammate and get within a second of a Williams. I mean, that's a pretty bad situation. So he's got to, he's got to plot his way out of a has as soon as he can, really. So his, his goal is to, is to see what, how he can get into a, into a better car for next year while learning as much as he can about Formula 1 this year. But it's certainly not the approach uh, Michael... Or, or, or is uh, Uncle Ralph talking the sport? Is it? I mean, they neither of them started in such low order cars. And uh, well, but he's tied to the Ferrari Academy. Ferrari put Mick there. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's like, do you want to be in Formula One or not? Yes, I want to be in Formula One. Well, here's a spot. I, I can't. Michael Schumacher was pragmatic enough. I mean, he started in a Jordan. I know that Jordan was higher up the order when when he was in it, but still. <laughs> well, he did one race in a Jordan, then got into a. Medicine. He still he still started in a Jordan. That still counts. One yeah, race still counts, in, and he qualified in uh, the top ten, seventh, I believe. My point is that he's tied to Ferrari pretty tightly already. Mick Schumacher is. And is, Ferrari yeah. asked him to go there. I, I wouldn't say no. But my, my worry for him, honestly, is which of the two drivers at Ferrari are going to make way anytime soon? I mean, I don't see Charles and, and Carlos leaving Ferrari in the next couple of seasons, do you? So that's not, uh, you know, how long do you want to spend at the back of the field, I guess, is my question. That I'd certainly be thinking about if I was in this situation. Yeah, but hold. Okay, let's pump the brakes here just a moment. Listen, I think you're just getting a little, you're getting a little proud of yourself, Mister Chairman. Listen, the fact of the matter is, uh, it's almost certain that Ferrari is going to put him, put Mick in an Alfa Romeo next year. Okay, then he has that's a higher level mid pack car, a little bit more respectable, it's and then it's not it. Okay, so but would you make that change? Behind Kimi Raikkonen in, in uh, Barcelona. All right. My point is, and then the year after that, you know, maybe maybe Carlos moves on. I mean, Carlos is on track to be the first Formula One driver to race in all 10 Formula One teams in his career <laughs> that are around during his career, you know. And, uh, I mean, Carlos, who knows where he'll be. I mean, I guess what would be next for Carlos? I mean, you know, Carlos ending up in a Mercedes, I could see that. Uh, as, as like a solid number two. I mean, that would clearly be a solid number two uh, position for him, right? And then, you know, a couple years on, Mick jumps in the Ferrari after Carlos. Yeah, Charles Leclerc, he's there for a while. I agree with that. But I I personally have a hard time seeing an issue with staying with Ferrari if Ferrari keep offering him F1 seats. I, I am being a little bit 
harsh on him. I, I guess my concern is, and we talked about this a few times, is how do you star in a has this season? It's, it's tricky, isn't it? When your benchmark is so weak, you know, you can't even, you know, nobody's going to look at a three-quarter second out-qualifying performance against Mazapan and go, oh, you're a star of the future, are they? They're going to say, well, yeah, you should, you should be three-quarters of, I could be, you know, Toto Wolf's probably saying I could be three-quarters of a second faster than Mazapan. So <laughs> I, I, he's in a very, I think he's in a very tricky situation. I think, you know, the best, best you could say is that he's getting seat time and learning the tracks and learning the F1 circus. But it is a concern for him. If, if he stays at Haas for next season and they don't make significant progress, I would be very, very worried if I was uh, his management. Well, and I think this is a good time to remind ourselves that there's going to be a big technical change next season and that will shake up the order a little bit. So we have to be a little bit open-minded about who's really going to be towards the front next year. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, can't imagine Mercedes won't be that far from the front, but... You know, you, we have Red Bull Racing, potentially uh, Ferrari, and potentially even Alpine and McLaren that could really start showing proper front-runner status next year. We just don't know. Well, the thing that struck me after Quali was the top 10 was dominated by the big five teams, right? So you had, uh, obviously, Mercedes, Red Bull, and then Ferrari, uh, McLaren, and Alpine locked out the top 10. So th- those are all... I mean, you know, McLaren isn't isn't a isn't a constructor of powertrains, but, you know, they are still one of the big dogs and, and bounced back in recent years. And, and the, the smaller teams, the B teams, occupied the lower order of the grid. And it was, Gasly was able to sneak into the top 10 in the race. Can I ask but, you a question before you go on? Did, did you get a little acid reflux when you put Williams in the B team slot? Look, I mean, I still, I'm actually heartened by Williams's performance this season. I see, I see promise. It, it is a glowing ember. It's not a full-on fire yet, but I see progress. Um, but yeah, of course it does. I mean, this is this is one of the greats of the '80s and '90s, and and they're still the second slowest team on the grid generally. That you know, that's entirely unacceptable. But but the uh, you know the likes of Jose Capito and and some of the other hires they've made are. are trying to rebuild and reinvest with new ownership to get them back where they belong. But yeah, they're currently, unfortunately, in the B-team category. I mean, they're now even using Mercedes gearboxes, right? They used to pride themselves on, on developing their own boxes. They've, they've thrown in the towel on that and recognized it's just easier to buy it from Mercedes and, and invest in, in other areas of the car. Which, I mean, that's just practical smarts, right? I mean, again, I, uh, pragmatism, I think, is a, is a, a big, big asset in many aspects of life, including Formula One. And I think that was just a solid pragmatic decision considering where they were. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, you know, they, they were running their own box and two seasons ago they were laughable, right? I mean, they weren't just the slowest, but they were slowest by a country mile. So at least we're seeing, you know, I mean, at one point in the race, you know, George Russell was fighting in the top 10 at the, at the bottom end of the top 10 and, and was if he got past Alonso he might have even clung on to a to a top 10 position unfortunately he got mugged as did Fernando by all of the the two stoppers that were on much fresher tires so that was uh, uh, Gasly and, and the two Aston Martins and he tumbled back down a 14th but I mean that that was uh, still ahead of one Alfa Romeo uh, his teammate both Hazes and an Alpine, so not a not a terrible day at the office for Russell and Williams. Certainly, they had better race pace 
in Barcelona than they than they demonstrated in Portimao. So again, I see signs of life, but but the the fundamental point remains that the biggest teams, the manufacturers, the constructors of which Red Bull is now their own essentially engine supplier. Yeah. No, it's it's bizarre year. to say, but you're one hundred percent right. Yeah, so those those are going to be the big boys, and if you're not in one of those ten seats, you're going to struggle to score points. I think I, I think we'll see that trend continue this season um, because Barcelona normally is a pretty good template for overall car performance on whatever type of track because it's got you know a good mix of corners, slow, fast, medium, and and so the pace at Barcelona tends to reflect in in the bulk of certainly the summer season in Europe. So that those uh, smaller teams are going to struggle. And I mean, Aston Martin brought upgrades for both cars to Barca. They couldn't qualify in the top 10 and nor could they finish in the top 10 in the race. So it's, it's tough times, even for the better funded uh, smaller teams. I do want to make a couple of quick points. Uh, first, uh, it is true that it's an energy drink that is now considered one of the big manufacturers in Formula One. But there is precedent for that because Mountain Dew had a mega mega time in the uh late 80s early 90s in trans am uh with tommy kendall so uh red bull is one of the big energy drinks but they are not the first mountain dew crushed it 20 30 years ago in uh trans am racing so that's point one point two um as we're kind of melding into the race conversation here when i talked about last week when i talked about how i would have preferred tires degrading a little faster and having pit strategy play into the racing a bit this is what i was referring to how you had to make a judgment is it faster to go one stop or two and there was some on-track action that we saw as a result of some people choosing one stop at the spanish grand prix some people choosing two and considering that catalonia is so notoriously difficult to pass on and we still had that racing to me i think bolsters my point a bit as you like to rib me nice and heavily for uh, suggesting more pit stops at the last podcast. Yeah, no doubt. It would have been a fairly dull race if everyone had just done a one-stopper. There would have been limited passing and it would have been a bit of a snooze fest. As it was, it, it definitely made a big difference, no doubt about that. I agree with your point. I, I would love them to to run the track in a configuration where they don't use the the, uh, the last chicane. Don't you think that would help? They've got a they've got a nice right right hand turn that they've butchered with that uh, that nasty yeah. left right chicane. I'd love to see yeah. them just try it in testing to see if it helps the overall raceability of the track because I think that would make the start finish straight long enough again that you could actually make uh, you know make better passing. But but yeah, I but mean, aren't there uh, better mm-hmm. racetracks in Spain just in general? I mean, MotoGP is huge in Spain. There's got to be a MotoGP track that's rated for Formula One. Well, they used to go to Jerez, didn't they? And yeah. I know that's still used for sports car racing. I don't know. I don't know what its status is today. But uh, but yeah, they've been wed on Barca for almost thirty years. I mean, Barcelona is a lovely city. <laughs> Maybe oh, that's yeah. a factor. I mean, um, listen, Barcelona's and the Catalonia region is beautiful mm-hmm. in general, and the uh, you know Spain's just a beautiful country in general, but. Come on. I mean, right. I mean, listen, Miami's a great city in a lot of ways. And that does not mean I'm pro-Miami parking lot for the upcoming USGP number two. So, yeah, I. it's a good question. Uh, it doesn't look like Barca's leaving the calendar anytime soon. I, I mean, are I, there any I, big I, parking lots in Spain? Maybe that's <laughs> can we can we do that? 
I, I mean, the reprofiled, what was it, turn six, seven, didn't make any difference, did it, really? No, no, at almost least, no. Yeah, which was a shame. So, should we, should we talk about the race then? We had Gasly unable to find his own grid position, which I thought was quite amusing. Yeah, poor guy. That was such a shame. <laughs> that I mean, massive it, yellow it, stripe just it, needs it, to get bigger and larger and with a big G on it that he might stop at it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, he ended up in the points. He could have done worse. It cost him five seconds. Not the end of the world. Uh, it was just a silly mistake more than anything, I think. Right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. We lost Sonoda pretty early on as well as the only DNF due to a fuel pressure issue. Well, uh, I can't believe they put that Honda lawnmower engine in his car where Pierre Gasly gets the Formula One engine and, you know, Sonoda's roughing it. You know, maybe they'll at least give him a generator engine next time around. Uh, well, maybe he'll, he'll luck out and get the jet engine at some point in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I have to say, I, I, I tweeted, you know, first quarter of the race. I said, God, here we go. No passing. This, this is rough. And then, like a lap after I said that, actually, it was Lance Stroll that did a really brilliant, and I think it was Lance Stroll on Alonso, did a great outside move, like, into turn one, two, and three. I was like, okay, all right, they're doing some passing. Some mid, the mid-pack is delivering. And then as the race went on, some really interesting strategies started playing out, and it became an interesting race with strategic calls, even though the on-track passing was still frustrating. And you could see that when leaders would get within a second of each other and even with DRS were really struggling. Well, we've got to wind back to the first pass of the race, haven't we? I mean, what did you make of Verstappen's move on Hamilton? I I, uh, I think it's now 2-1 to, to Max in terms of here oh. I come, I'm coming through, either collide with me or, or give way. 100%. Yeah, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have had a race at all, it feels. had. Uh, I mean, Max's move into turn one on lap one is what gave us the interesting strategy race to watch. So absolutely, please elaborate. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it was a do-or-die do maneuver. He definitely got off the line slightly better than Hamilton, but Hamilton was still ahead going into, into the first turn. And if he'd taken his normal line, Max would hit him. And so Hamilton, I think, had a sixth sense to, to or obviously anticipated uh, Max you know, going for the kamikaze maneuver and, uh, and decided to, to, to uh, get out of the way, saving, saving certainly his right-hand floor. It was almost a desperate move for Max to try and give him an opportunity to to lead from the beginning. Because you're right, if if Hamilton had led into the first corner and, and, and out of it, I think it would have he would have just driven away. But as it was, it, it gave us a more of an interesting afternoon uh, for the for the win. But I do think that you know what we've seen is so Hamilton forced Max wide of Bahrain that essentially cost Max the win because he made the pass off the track. Hamilton got the win in Bahrain, but then got more than repaid by Max in, in uh, Imola when Max forced him off and over the curbs at, uh, at the first chicane, uh, damaging Hamilton's car and, and forcing him to concede the, the position. And that was a very tough move. And this was another very tough move. And so what it seems to be is that the person in second is willing to to risk more and the leader seems to or certainly Hamilton seems to be willing to to concede at this point because he realizes there's a you know there's, there's an opportunity to still win the race even if he loses the position at that moment yeah I it's funny this is a debate that you and I are about to have that surprises me I I thought that 
this move more than Imola and more than the others we've seen, I thought this move was strong, but also pretty, I thought it was fair. I thought that Verstappen showed his nose nice and early and was very strong to break late and was not quite, but pretty much alongside Hamilton by the time they got to the apex. And I thought it was a great, great move on Verstappen's part. And to me, it was more fair than what he tried at Imola. But if Hamilton had just taken the line, which he was really in his right to do, because he was definitely ahead as they turned into the corner by, I think, almost even half a car's length, then Max would have hit him. They would have had a collision. Instead, Hamilton had to take a slower, more evasive line to avoid that, that crash, thus con- you know, conceding the corner. I mean, fortunately, he didn't lose any places to either Bottas or, or Leclerc, because I don't know what they were doing, but they seemed to be taking the scenic route through and, and weren't able to take advantage <laughs> <laughs> of, of Lewis being very slow through turn one. Well, but, as we just uh, said, Spanish, Spain is lovely. I mean, my, I can see why you'd take the scenic route. <laughs> My expectation is that later in the season, if Hamilton's got a reasonably large lead in the championship, he won't be giving that space to Max and they'll, they'll crash. Because I think that the, the worry is, is that if you continue to concede the corner, then people expect you to do it every time. And Lewis won't be wanting to be considered a soft touch. So he'll, he'll hold his ground at some point when it makes, when it makes sense to do so. Well, it's, that's fascinating to me. I, I, I got the sense that the two drivers kind of know that the other is quite, quite good, like special. And so there is just a touch more respect given. So Lewis gives Max Verstappen a touch more respect than he would, say, Pierre Gasly or Perez or whomever. Like, I could see him giving uh, Leclerc just a touch more respect than he would signs or giving Alonso a touch more respect than he would... um, you know, Ocon. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I wonder if there's kind of like an like just even a subconscious elite status. Okay, I'll give it to you. That was that was a good move. And on when tables are turned, you darn well better give it to me too. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think Max would would give Lewis the position. I think if roles were reversed, Max would have closed the door and they would have collided. I don't think Max is giving because Max is still. Yeah, I think in his mind and Red Bull's mind, they're still the outsider here. They're the ones. Is that the, the Formula champion. One version of a Dutch oven? What you're describing? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is, is a little Dutch oven action on track? I mean, that's cold. I mean, don't you think they were talking up the fact that they were what seven tenths of a second slower at the same track last year? And that they've you know they've they've made enormous taken enormous strides to close the gap. And they're, you know, essentially at the same pace as Mercedes. But they still believe, I think over a race distance, that they're on the back foot. And so they have to still be a little bit more desperate. Um, and I think that was reflected in that move. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't investigated. I'm not suggesting it should have been investigated. I'm just simply saying that Hamilton had to take evasive action to avoid a collision. And I don't think he'll continue to do that as the season wears on. It's an interesting point. I felt that this move more than the Imola move, just to have a back-to-back, I thought that this was a, a more fair move by Verstappen than the Imola move was. That said, you're right that I'm sure Hamilton... I mean, because we saw that in Portugal, uh, where Hamilton was not 
he was not going to be he because uh, I forget exactly which time, but Hamilton overtook Verstappen and was pretty cheeky about where he placed the car, and that did seem a little bit like an answer to what happened in Bahrain. So, uh, or in Imola, excuse me. So. I don't know. There's some back and forth there, but I still think the mutual respect between the two was quite high. I find it really fascinating that we're in this position where this is where, you know, Hamilton's, there's a, there's something's really been triggered in Hamilton. And so he knows that it's game on between him and Verstappen. And I think we're seeing some of the best driving from Hamilton that we've seen in years. And it's really exciting to watch. And it does make me wonder... Uh, what you think about how the teammates, Botas and Perez, are handling these things. Yeah, so one just final thought. I, look, I totally respect what Max did. Max knew he had really one shot to win the Grand Prix, and that was to get in the lead off the line. And so he was committed, went for it, and it paid off for him. So my hat's off to him for that. You know, we know he's a, he's a great, great racing driver, and he just demonstrated it again. If there's half a sniff, he'll he'll go for it compared to some of the very dubious defensive maneuvers that were made, uh, one by Lando Norris with the, the very late uh, line changes going into turn one, which were downright idiotic, quite honestly. Uh, in fact, Norris got a black and white flag shown to him, and, and as did another driver who, who performed a similar late line change to try and defend. Uh, you know, that, that type of that type of shenanigans really should not be at this level of racing, but it was a it was a fine effort. I'm just making the point that there's there's a keeping a little tally here of harsh moves on each other. It's two one in favour of Verstappen, so we'll just keep keep track of that. And, and sure enough, it'll get to a point where they collide. I'm I'm pretty down certain. I'd almost bet a bottle of gin on that. But Ooh, in terms, well, I love that. I love that. <laughs> I love that harsh move tabulator. I think that's great. See, that's that's chairman of the board thinking right there, Mister Roche. <laughs> So as far as the teammates go, well, I think Botas is just enjoying his last season at Mercedes, isn't he? So he just likes to likes to get his uh, customary podium. Um, and and um, fastest lap. Yeah, and likes to be a little bit awkward to be passed when the team tells him to let Hamilton by. Although Other he didn't that, get fastest lap this time around, did he? No. He yeah, did that not, was no, Max. But... Yeah, that was It was fairly close again, actually, but... Uh... Max was but on no. softs, though, whereas yeah. Botas was on mediums, so he always had a bit of a advantage. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, as I said, he was there and thereabouts in quali. He, he sort of fluffed his start, didn't he? He allowed Leclerc to get ahead of him, which then ruined his race. I mean, he was comfortably third position, um, but, you know, really not very exciting other than that. And then Perez did okay to recover to fifth, but never had the pace to to get uh, and pass Leclerc. So, uh, you know, he salvaged a, a Right, but result. pause right there. Hold on, hold mm-hmm. on, hold on. Mm. Think about think about where Perez is versus where Albon was a season ago. I do think it's fair to say that Perez is, thus far at least, doing a much, much better do- job as number two here. I would say the same with a fewer much in that sentence. Um, he is doing a, a much better job than Albon or Gasly. But I still don't think it's to the level that Red Bull need. Red Bull need him to be, at the very least, on the second row of the grid. Because if you think about it, so if we talk about the race here, what allowed Hamilton to win was by going on to the alternate strategy of doing a two-stopper. Why was he able to do that? Because there was no risk of him 
when he took his second stop of being behind a Red Bull because Perez was still, you know, half a lap uh, away. And why was that? Because Perez qualified poorly and then had to make his way through the midfield. So in terms of Perez delivering what Red Bull need, he didn't this weekend. That's, that's absolutely factual. Uh, does he have more potential? Is he at a higher level than the other number two drivers in the past couple of seasons? Yes. But is he where he needs to be yet? No, he is not. I'm not going to argue with that, but I think that Red Bull needs to fire someone different than the driver. I think it's time to let Helmut Marco go. I, <laughs> let's. Uh, I'm sorry, Helmut. You've had a good run, but uh, you're just you're not performing to the level we're hoping for anymore. I mean, think about it honestly. You know, the this is what I talked about earlier. The pressure that the non-star driver gets at Red Bull, and the last driver that handled that pressure with any amount of uh, reasonability was Mark Webber. Really? I mean, Daniel Ricciardo was good, but that was before Verstappen was really established as the new number one. Once Red Bull gets that established, it, the number two driver just has a monumental task ahead of them, and that doesn't seem fitting. Well, and I mean, uh, I, you, you brought Weber up. I mean, there were some really tough days at Red Bull, even when they were dominating the championships between Vettel and, and Weber. Yep. And Weber felt that uh, Vettel got additional support from the team that he wasn't privy to. And so I think it's hard a, to argue with, don't you think? I, I do, but I don't think it's Helmut Marko's fault, is it? I mean, uh, It's Helmut Marko's fault. <laughs> I mean, look, he gives... He, he reminds me of a Bond villain, Marko. And he... Uh, the more you read about it... And that's it, the he, kind of person you want to stay? <laughs> <laughs> you need a good Bond villain in the team. <laughs> I mean, he is terrified. Even when you're just watching at home. So, does he uh, does he sneeze blood? I forget that <laughs> villain's name, but he he was a he was a Nordic chap. I, I think he's from Sweden or Norway. Uh, lovely guy, actually. But um, that Bond villain who who he sneezed blood and it, like blood dripped from his nose. He said, "Pay no attention to that. It's fine." Basically, I'm thinking more so, like Blofeld. You know, the guy who who was always stroking the cat. Ah, you're, you're a classic Bond villain. I, okay, I like it. Okay. Yeah, I'm going back to Sean Connery here. But, uh, but look, I, you have to say, big picture, Red Bull are the only team other than Ferrari to mount a credible challenge to the dominant Mercedes uh, hybrid era. And, and they've done that with, with Max Verstappen. And you know they've got a very good shot at winning one or both championships this season. So you've got to give Helmut Marko some credit there, as uh, as with the rest of the team, the likes of Newey and company. So the second driver is a problem for them, and and I think Perez will come good. I just don't think he was able to achieve it this weekend. I mean, I think that the reality is, though, you look at the point situation. Hamilton's got twice as many points as his teammate, and, uh, and Verstappen more than twice that of Perez. I mean, it's a two-horse race, isn't it? I mean, we can just kiss goodbye Botas's and Perez's title chances four races in. They are the number two, and they're going to support their teammates. And that's really the key on how they'll be judged, is how well they support them. And that's what will give them a good drive for next year, is, is, that, is, that, uh, is that support role and whether or not it helps, them, it helps whoever clinch the title. Yeah, no, that, that's right. And I think the other point that I is worth making is that Mercedes is showing some real strength in terms of strategy calls and bold moves and 
leaning on Hamilton's talent and Hamilton's intuition of how long the tires will last and things like that to say, okay, we're going to make a play here. The fact that Mercedes made that early second stop when they did and caught Red Bull off guard, that, I mean, in terms of this narrow field that we're looking at, that was stroke of genius, I thought. Well, it was, but from what I'm hearing, it was made well ahead of the race. I mean, they went into the Grand Prix weekend knowing that there was a real chance this would be a two-stopper because uh, of the abrasive nature of the of the Barcelona surface, uh, track surface, ca- causing high tyre deg. Most of the teams were all saying, oh, it's just a one-stopper. But Mercedes, right from the beginning of the weekend, were planning on a two-stopper. They were the only team that had two medium uh, sets of tyres available for their drivers. And, you know, it was definitely a strategy option right from the beginning. I think if they'd got into the lead off the start, um, I mean, I was very surprised when when Verstappen made his first pit stop, which was an unusual stop for Red Bull because they bungled it and it was quite slow over four seconds. You know, the opportunity was there for Hamilton to be pitted and, and get the a get track position over Verstappen. And they elected not to take it. And I And I at the time was thinking, oh, dear. If this is a one-stopper, they're in real trouble because clearly Hamilton could could uh, stay within a second of Verstappen, but he couldn't get close enough to get, and even with DRS assistance, get the you know even look like making a pass. Honda so I, power. Thought we, I, I thought we were in for an afternoon. Of- <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought it was going to get more of a motion. Okay, darn. <laughs> I just thought we were going to be in for an afternoon of watching Hamilton just just follow Verstappen's gearbox, and I was like, why on earth didn't they pit him? And, and you're right, they had to, to roll the dice. They'd already had that strategy in the back of their mind. They played it. And even though Hamilton was worried about a 22-second gap, I mean, at times he was lapping 1.7, 1.8 seconds a lap quicker than Verstappen. I mean, he made it look easy in the end. Absolutely. Um, and it's funny, though, but there's, it's, Mercedes thinks about all these things ahead of time. They go through all these different iterations to think about what's going to be the best course. And they have that idea in the head of time but to still to make the decision to execute when they did i think was just really well done and they did it at a time where it made it really hard for red bull to react the other part of it is that hamilton will make these decisions like no keep me out on these tires forever i remember do you remember forget which race it was but he stayed on on his intermediate tires for like two-thirds of the grand prix and they're basically slicks at the end and was everyone out was on the radio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and they were like, hey, you might want to pit. And Hamilton's like, no, 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 I'm good. <laughs> like, right. you know, Hamilton's become very, very good at perceiving where that tire's going to go. I mean, Hamilton, Hamilton doesn't even need four inflated tires to win a race. <laughs> He's proven. <laughs> so <laughs> there, yeah. there is, there's, I think, you know, the credit is distributed to the Mercedes team for having that strategy and going through all those iterations, but also using Hamilton's ability on on that side, you know, the strategic side of Hamilton, not just his pure driving talent, but understanding his strategy, how he uses tires, how he can save them when he needs to, et cetera, et cetera. That I think we're now looking at Mercedes with 141 points versus Red Bull racing with 112, and it does seem like generally speaking red bull quality pace has a superior car and race pace it's really tight 
Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, the, when he came out after his second pit stop and it looked like he would catch Verstappen with one or two laps to go, that's where, you know, Red Bull are crying out to have Perez in third or fourth place running ahead of Hamilton at that point to act as a blocker, at least for a couple of laps. And that might be the difference between winning or coming second. But of course, Perez was was behind Hamilton after that second stop. And, and so all Hamilton had to pass was Botas, who obviously didn't make it easy, but was always going to get out of the way for him. And only cost him like half a second or so. So those fine margins are what are going to allow Verstappen to, to convert more of these opportunities to wins. And, and it, it's going to take a team effort. It's going to take Perez being closer to his ultimate pace. Um, All right, but real quick, because it, it's a little bit... I mean, come on. All right, at the same time, Perez is a Grand Prix winner. He's been in this sport over 10 years and uh, has a lot of really strong experience. Who would you put in that car other than Perez? Who would be... You could pick anyone. Who would be, who would be the second driver at Red Bull Racing? Well, I mean, if you put Charles Leclerc in, a, in another Red Bull... Right. Well, You'd have but two Leclerc is in, he, there, wouldn't you? Leclerc, Leclerc is much closer to Hamilton and Verstappen. He would not accept. I think that's very clear. He would not accept number two driver status. I mean, let's just just go completely crazy here. Let's just say um, you'd have equal number one status, and you've got a chance of actually fighting for a championship rather than you know hoping to come fifth or sixth in the championship, staying at Ferrari. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't any driver take that? I mean, look at look at the old mentality of a Senna or a Prost, who would basically do whatever it took to get into the best car in the field to give themselves a shot at the championship, whatever the status is to to the other driver. I think you'd have a lot of multi twenty one situations. With uh, of course you you would. You'd have lots of yeah. issues. You'd have you'd have the same type of infighting that happened when you had Prost and Senna together. But also, that's great for us <laughs> watching. Well, it's true. And, and Let's be more self-serving. You're right. It, it, yeah. No, no. I mean, that's fair. Of, of the four best cars this year, I would like to see four really top-line drivers, all with a shot of winning. I mean, certainly Hamilton has never said he would he would uh, be opposed to that. I don't think he has a problem fighting. When when the, he was asked about having to actually, you know, make the pass on Botas rather than passing, uh, you know. A, rather than Botas moving aside for him you said oh that's fine he's got his own race I've got to make the move you know that's how he's always been that's how it should be and I think Verstappen is, is of the same ilk he, he's in, in, confident enough in his own ability that he, can, he thinks he can beat anyone uh, particularly in equal equipment so I don't think they would necessarily um, mind having a really top draw driver in the other in the other car and so that's where you know with these with these great young drivers we've got coming into the sport or sitting in uncompetitive machinery it'd be wonderful to have them in in another mercedes or red bull but that's okay that's that's all right what the team wants to do and that's why we're not in that situation how much are you willing to pay nico rosberg to come out of retirement and get in that second red bull well nico rosberg was a very good number two driver you know that as well as i do (laughs) I mean, world champion, was, world champion, world champion because he didn't have any oh unreliability. Here we go. You know this story. So now Nico, I, I, Nico, I know this story because it was repeated to me a hundred <laughs> times in the Hatchy Building. But you're making your own point, right? <laughs> Nico Rosberg was the ideal number two. When your lead driver doesn't finish, he was there to win, right? And and that happened enough in 2016 that he ended up world champion. 
And when he retired, Lewis Hamilton took on the role of lead driver and has done very well. <laughs> it does make me laugh, in all seriousness, how Nico really loves to talk Hamilton up now because he knows that the bigger Hamilton looks, the greater he looks himself because he was the only one who defeated him in 2016. But yeah, just take a look at the results. Hamilton had about, what, 42 DNFs that season because of Mercedes engines. Otherwise, he would have been world champion. <laughs> Is there anything else about the Spanish Grand Prix you want to touch on before we close? I mean, I really, um, I did enjoy the the Alonso effort to uh, to stay on one, uh, just a one-stopper strategy that resulted in him finishing 17th. I mean... <laughs> Dear Lord, I mean, his teammates. So one of the things about Alonso is his absolutely unbelievable race pace, the ability to get the maximum out of the car every lap of a race. Well, he just got blown away by Ocon, didn't he? I mean, they were both on the same strategy, same car, yeah. not too Ocon, dissimilar. Ocon got a point, I believe, yeah. right? Two, so, two points. Yeah. He came ninth. Two points. There you go. So. Yeah. And Alonso really, really, really struggled. Uh, oh, yeah. It was Gasly. Gasly that got the single point. That's right. And, um, but that, that uh, I mean, I, I, I am liking the fact that the television producers are willing to go down the order to find some racing. And, and when we had that midfield battle that, that was caused by Alonso holding everyone up, I thought that was very entertaining. It did, uh, it was a little frustrating when we knew that there was a, a lead for the uh, battle for the lead, and yet we were seeing midfield racing. But when that wasn't happening, I'm more than happy to go down the field and see what's going on. And so that was entertaining. And, um, and again, I think the, the sort of middle order battle between Leclerc, Perez, Ricardo, Saints and Norris was, it was good. I mean, that is going to be a cracker all season. It, you, you can't tell who's going to finish on top between McLaren or Ferrari and, and which of those drivers are going to get the best out of their car the, over the weekend. So that's a really good, good battle to watch as well. So Leclerc and Ferrari highlights. and increasingly Alpine, I think. Well, not on race performance, but yeah, in, in well, okay. maybe they're, they'll they're they'll get closer maybe to it. certain tracks, right? I mean, yeah. I think they're going to be pretty close in a couple of places. So yeah, that, that was um, that was the conclusion for me. I mean, we've got uh, uh, already, uh, you know, in in terms of the championship for drivers. I mean, Norris, Leclerc, uh, forty-one, forty points. I mean, it's neck, obviously neck and neck between those two, and then there's a bit of a gap back to Perez, Ricardo, and Saints. And then in the constructors, McLaren on 65 and Ferrari on 60. So those two are going to be tussling it out for third place, for sure. To be fair, um, Ricardo and Sainz, they're still getting used to new teams, and I think they're going to be stronger. And I think Ricardo is showing proper gains uh, already. So I think that could, that could be real interesting as the season progresses and they get comfortable. So uh, there's a lot to look forward to. In terms of podcasts coming up, there's a lot to look forward to as well. Huh? See that segue? Um, the uh, the next Formula One race is a couple weekends away, and it is the Monaco Grand Prix, which is quite cool. But there is some IndyCar racing going on next week. It is the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, I believe. And that is going to be a chance that I take to cover uh, the Texas races a little bit in IndyCar. So we'll have a lot of IndyCar to talk about on the 15th. And then here's something cool. Monaco and the Indianapolis 500 are not on the same weekend. Monaco's a week ahead. So we'll be able to cover those two independently, which I'm quite excited for. I'm I'm chuffed. Hey, look at that. I'm chuffed about it. Is that I, I think I used that correctly, yeah? Does that mean we can have Hamilton in the Indy 500 then? 
Oh, <laughs> that, that I wouldn't. I wouldn't turn that down. Something tells me he would, though. Yeah, I think so. Alonso might not, but he would. Right, but um, so here's I mentioned Hatch, Hatchy a few minutes earlier. Um, my latest YouTube video is out, and it is about the seventh generation Hyundai Elantra. And uh, Good Lord, so it brought back some fun memories. I am, <laughs> Chris, I have to tell you, this is a, it's a mighty fine car. Is it one. really? Oh, it's genuinely good. It's genuinely good. It's, what were you uh, in last week? A competition BMW, and now it's a Hyundai Elantra this week. Do you? So it's well, slow week then. <laughs> well, I, I do have a Mercedes video that's going to be coming in the not-too-distant future, and it was fun, actually, that one, to talk because it's a Mercedes A-Class. It's an A35 AMG Mercedes. And uh, so I got a chance to chat a little bit just about it. It's like, hey, by the way, Mercedes knows a couple of things about sports cars, re-Formula One. So, but uh, that is well, all for the future. What was the sticker on that, on that Elantra? Was it over Elant- 20K? Well, that's just it. That's just it. it. So out the door, the car I had was just over 25K. Oh, my and Lord, $25,000 for the Elantra. No. It's, it's still it's cheaper. It's less expensive than a Honda Civic, and they still start under twenty one grand. And, I, man, that car, I'm telling you, it's properly improved. Finally, after they got that, uh, that B-team structural engineering folks out of there, now they can really fly. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> Roche, I'm kidding. That was below the belt. I apologize. No, I mean, they the could car... market it properly. That's always been a weakness, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, but I mean, you know, you know, you know that uh, Hyundai works. They, there's always big improvements from generation to generation, and this one's no exception. So, I mean, but I mean, with, you know, inflation's obviously on everyone's lips these days. But twenty-five grand for a compact car—that's a lot of money. Well, but it's a compact car that's one hundred and eighty-four inches long. I mean. Honestly, compact cars are now the Not size of mid-sized cars were in the late 90s. So should we just call it a mid-sized car then? I'm, I'm, the government does. The EPA classifies it as a mid-sized car. Oh, it's a mid-sized compact. Got it. <laughs> I, listen, listen, we live in ever-increasing time. I, look, I mean, so I did that M3 competition, like you said, recently. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's 190 inches almost, that one. Okay, 190 inches for a three series. You know, well, yeah. that's... The one, the one series is the new three, isn't it? Back in, back in the old days where the three was really a three. That's, it, yeah. So yeah. the original M3, the E30 M3 that came out was just over 170 inches long. This yeah. thing is almost 20 inches longer. Crazy. So, is it any better and, for those 20 inches, do you think? Well, there's more rear seat room. Certainly. Oh, that's uh, always why you buy a BMW, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. For, for rear passenger comfort. But no, I mean, seriously, I mean, the car is brilliant handler. I mean, it it has immense amounts of grip and all those things. But just cars everywhere are growing, is my point. Yeah. And so the Elantra is bigger than the Civic, but maybe by an inch. It's not like it's five inches longer or anything like that. And here we are. We're talking cars here. This is a racing podcast. Uh I want to thank you for listening, especially the last bit about cars. Go watch my YouTube video. It's super important. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Man, I can't even say podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. 
And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, it was a brilliant conversation as always. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.